Hello, everyone. This is James Lindsay. You are listening to the New Discourses podcast, and probably against my better judgment, I want to do a hopefully relatively short episode here about why I have not yet signed up for the COVID-19 vaccine. So just to be completely forthright, I'm recording this on the 9th of May. I'm saying forthright because this may end up having to change. You never know. So I'm recording this on the 9th of May, 2021. I do not have the vaccine at present. I do not intend to get the vaccine uh, at present. I see the walls potentially closing in. I have a feeling that the airline industry, for example, as private companies will probably end up beating me in this stand, seeing as my current career trajectory very much involves having to travel. And there's only so much standing against that that I think I'll be able to do. But at present, I do not have the vaccine. I do not intend to get the vaccine, except if certain conditions change. I'm not opposed to vaccines in general. I'm not opposed even to this vaccine in specific. Uh, The accusations that I am an anti-vaxxer are completely false. They're completely vacuous. Um, I am in my 40s and I have every single vaccine. A typical person in my age demographic would have. I don't have the chicken pox vaccine, for example, which most people younger than me might have because it didn't exist when I got chicken pox. So I got chicken pox the old fashioned way by getting sent by my parents to the home of another child who had chicken pox. So we could get it over with when I was young rather than when I was old. Just as a little aside, if you don't know that the older you are, when you get chicken pox, the worse it is. It's kind of like COVID. Um, as it turns out, So I got chicken pox, I think when I was seven or eight, and I don't remember it being particularly terrible. My brother was younger and had actually, he he has a thing with things that itch. He had, he had a much harder time, but my neighbor across the street ended up getting chicken pox, not from us sometime later, a couple of years later, um, at 17 or something like that. And it damn near killed him. It, it was really, really bad for him. It was really rough. He ended up, you know, in and out of the hospital, etc. And so when we were children, the way that we prevented ourselves from getting chicken pox in severe cases was that we, our parents rounded us up and took us over to somebody's house who had chicken pox. We had chicken pox parties and now they have a chicken pox vaccine. So I don't have the chicken pox vaccine, but I have the MMR I've had whatever boosters, I've had tetanus, I actually stupidly put a nail through my wrist a few years ago and got a tetanus booster. I am not actually anti-vax in any regard. I am not even anti the COVID vax. I'm hesitant on this COVID vaccine for a variety of reasons, and I want to talk about that, but that's not what this argument's about. I could talk about you know, a large number of the reasons that I'm hesitant. Of course, it's a new technology. I don't know what this technology has proven. Most importantly, to to mention mention, it doesn't have a long-term safety record. So that's concerning to me. I've spoken with my, this isn't about me, but just to point out, I've spoken with healthcare professionals uh, who I trust and who I have entrusted my healthcare with. And they have indicated to me that, you know, given some of the uh, family history that I have, that I'm at risk for certain autoimmune conditions, and they are not sure whether or not this vaccine might exacerbate those. And that may be something to be concerned about. And so that they have advised 
in their professional capacity that I should hesitate. But that's just me personally. I want to make a principled argument about why vaccine hesitancy around the COVID-19 vaccine is a reasonable position to hold and something that I at least cleave to. And I expect it's going to go over just about as well as when I came out with a principled argument for why I was going to vote for Donald Trump in the 2020 election. If you haven't heard that podcast episode I did, it was called Biden is not the room. Uh, Talks about the reasons that I, at the time in October, when I recorded it, that I was going to, uh, I had to finally at the last minute decided I was going to vote for Trump. I think I would have much stronger reasons for having wanted to vote for Trump now. Um, But at the time I was pretty Trump hesitant, but I had decided it was worth doing and a necessity. And uh, I made that argument and it went over very well with people who supported Trump and very, very poorly with everybody else and has led to quite the adventure over the past what are we at now? Um, seven or eight months, multiple cancellations, etc. People know the story. Turns out that that was a wild ride. And I expect this is going to be kind of the similar case of a wild ride if I come out and explain why I'm hesitant about this COVID-19 vaccine. So a few things just to put up front. Like I said, there's no long-term safety profile for this vaccine. That's important. I did a thread on Twitter a few days ago. So in ancient history, by the time, well, I mean, by now, even the way that Twitter flows, but by the time you listen to this podcast, it will, so it will have been in ancient history. But I talked about the reasons why the public health establishment have not earned our trust. And in fact, they've done the opposite. They've burned away all of our trust. And that trust is going to be important, but not key to my principled argument. My principled argument is actually very simple. Uh, you could say it's as simple as saying nobody should have to have injected into their body anything they don't want injected into their body in order to participate in the normal activities of daily life or even to be considered generally as in their their, their general humanity co-equal with their fellow man because they have not had it. Um, but my argument actually boils down to the simplest possible expression. If you want me to get this vaccine, you have to make the argument. You can't just coerce me into it. And I say that knowing that the pressures that will be created, again, probably mostly by the airlines, the airline industry, which is a problem that should be challenged on this. It should be challenged on this as soon as possible before it's absolutely necessary. But if you want me to get the vaccine, I know that I'll probably get coerced into it by these industries or whatever. But you shouldn't be able to make me inject something based on coercion. That is the heart of this argument. So we can talk about the aspects of public trust and how those have been burned, and we will. We can talk about um, a lot of things. But the heart of my principled argument against my getting, and I would advise other people to think about this as well, the COVID-19 vaccine is that if you want me to get the vaccine, you have to make the argument. You can't merely coerce me into doing it. You can't merely force, you could, I suppose, and probably will force me or coerce me into it. But you didn't win the argument to do that. And I didn't, in that case, volunteer for it. And I'm going to resent everybody who is involved, every industry who is involved, every individual who is involved, every politician who didn't stand up for my right to make a choice on this. 
for every politician who didn't stand up for my right to make an informed decision on this. I'm going to resent every single one of them for the rest of my life. Every single one of them. Every Democrat who backed this stuff, hate forever. The whole party. Every Republican who didn't have a spine, hate forever. Every industry that I feel like betrayed me and my ability to have this freedom, hate forever. And eventually, my behavior will uh, reflect this. And this, of course, will be amplified beyond any measure if there's some bad reaction, which my healthcare professionals have advised me. It's in my, my, my prudent interest to wait um, on this thing. So this is the kind of the perspective that I'm taking when I talk about this thing, the COVID vaccine. My principled argument is you shouldn't be able to coerce me. You have to make the argument. So what does that mean? Well, let's compare against these other vaccines that I have. Granted, I got the MMR vaccine, mumps, measles, and rubella before I was old enough to know better, which we should know is not necessary in the COVID vaccine case. Measles is a vigorous vicious childhood disease. There are a lot of people who are genuinely anti-vaxxers who are suspicious of the health profile uh, of the vaccine, and they are willing to take the risk against the measles virus itself. And, you know, I can understand the principled point that they're making, but for me, and I think they would be wise to listen, the measles vaccine, has, the, the, the argument for the measles vaccine has been made. Measles is often survivable and maybe even without significant consequence, but it also often causes high enough fevers to make children blind or deaf or brain damaged or other things. It is a viciously bad childhood disease that very recently caused lots of problems. And we have a very, I hate to use the word this way, but truly privileged position that it has been diminished to such a point where we no longer have to fear measles and where we can think that the trade-off involved in getting this vaccine for whatever health problems it may actually cause in the long run, whether those are autoimmune disorders, whether those are other issues, for whatever reasons, we're in a position where we can think, oh, wow, those are actually worse than having, you know, this extraordinarily contagious, extraordinarily virulent disease rip through children, deforming killing, maiming, blinding many of them. It's a very cushy position to be in, to be able to neglect the trade-off. And that's kind of a key here. There's always trade-offs, right? There's always trade-offs in life. Everybody wants a perfect outcome. Anti-vaxxers want a perfect health outcome for their kids. Well, it turns out there's not. There's trade-offs. There are trade-offs. Maybe pertussis, whooping cough, as it's called, isn't going to be that big of a deal. Maybe an extra vaccine. Maybe it's too many. I don't know. I'm not going to try to make this argument. I would be vaccinated against that as well. I know somebody who as an adult got pertussis from a unvaccinated child and it was a six week ordeal, uh, probably one of the worst health ordeals of his adult life. Um, it's not a pleasant ride. So again, we're talking trade-offs. Whooping cough, I don't actually know its total profile. I'm not like a virologist or anything like that, and I don't want to claim that I am or make any misrepresentation. But the the fact of the matter is, is that was a rough ride. I watched this guy. Well, I didn't watch him in person because he had to quarantine. He was a friend of mine. We got together weekly and did things, and for almost two months, over two months actually, we didn't because he was so sick and was afraid he was contagious and didn't want to spread it just in case, say, my vaccine had worn off, which is what happens is why adults often will end up getting things from unvaccinated children. 
from these so-called childhood diseases. I don't know if, however, that whooping cough is bad enough like measles to where, or, or mumps or something like this, where, where you're literally risking the um, blinding or, or deafening or something like this of people because the virus causes such a vigorous fever and the deaths and the, the other problems. Polio, of course, you can look at polio. Polio literally crippled people. And as it literally crippled people, again, the trade-off profile is pretty easy. If there was a polio comeback or a smallpox comeback right now, virtually zero people with any sense would hesitate to take a polio or smallpox vaccine. And there are two elements to that. And I think they apply to the measles vaccine as well. One is we actually do have a long-term safety profile for these things. We know what happens. And we know that there may be costs associated. The trade-off argument stands. But there is a long-term safety record with these. They have been in use for a very long time. We know a great deal more about them. The COVID vaccine, at least the Pfizer and Moderna brands, use novel technology. Not to say anything one way or the other about this technology, this mRNA technology, except that it's new. And so it doesn't have a long-term safety profile. If we had smallpox come <laughs> come back, or if we had polio come back, come back, we know about the vaccines. We also know just how bad those viruses are. So the trade-off analysis isn't difficult. The argument is being made. The way I might put it with measles is that measles plus the long safety record of the measles vaccine have made the argument for me for the measles vaccine. And so because the argument has been made for that vaccine, for me, I am willing to get that vaccine. Does that make sense? This has not been achieved with the COVID vaccine. That's the kind of key point to the argument. The virus itself, COVID-19, SARS coronavirus 2, is not sufficiently threatening to a person in my demographic, or at all, frankly, but I, I say that aware of people with larger numbers of comorbidities, older people, overweight people, people with other health problems, diabetes, uh, COPD, etc., cancers or whatever they may be. I say that aware that other people are going to have to do a different trade-off assessment. But for people like me, the argument's not being made by the virus. And then you have to add in the fact that the two elements that I'm looking at when I'm trying to make a, a decision about a virus other than my healthcare provider recommendations are going to be, what is, what's the trade-off analysis here between the severity and danger that the virus poses to me versus the severity and danger that the vaccine might pose to me? And so with a virus like polio, it's a no-brainer. With a virus like smallpox, it's a no-brainer. With a virus like measles, I think that it's a fairly no-brainer. With a condition like I got, like I said, just a little bit ago, I got a tetanus booster after putting a nail through my wrist a couple of years ago, or a few years ago. I don't know how many it's been now. We're redoing our floors. Me and carpentry are um, not necessarily the best of friends sometimes. Um, but I got a tetanus booster. Tetanus. Tetanus is not a disease you want to fool around with. The vaccine has a, has a, has a great safety profile. Trade-offs. What's the probability that I have tetanus from this? Turns out it was probably really low. Still thought it was a good idea to get the vaccine. Still took the very uncomfortable shot in the arm. Still ended up with, you know, the low-grade fever, et cetera, that you get for a couple of days. And the, the feeling off and ill that the, the tetanus vaccine tends to carry. It's not that this is an anti-vax position. It's that I'm analyzing the trade-offs. 
and tetanus has made the cut smallpox and polio would make the cut mumps measles and rubella have made the cut the trade-off argument for me has been made if i were raising children today i would advise them to get the chickenpox vaccine why because if you i don't know exactly what the the rate of shingles is in people who end up with having gotten the chickenpox vaccine but i do know that people who got chickenpox the way i got it often develop shingles. Shingles is an unpleasant circumstance. What is shingles? Shingles is, turns out when you get chicken pox and you get over chicken pox, the virus hides in your nervous system. It doesn't ever really go all the way away. You don't really get all the way over it. And under certain conditions of stress, etc., for some reason, the virus can become active along nerve pathways and it causes a rash and you are contagious and it's very painful my office mate, when I was uh, in, in graduate school, got shingles. I've had several other friends as adults who've got shingles, and it's just a reactivation of the chickenpox virus. Well, if the, if the chickenpox vaccine prevents any realistic or any significant possibility of developing shingles later, that goes into the trade-off analysis. And the trade-off analysis is I'd probably advise people to get that vaccine. So it's, again, just not being to sound defensive, but it's just preposterous to try to make the argument that I'm coming at this from an anti-vaccination standpoint. I think vaccines are probably one of the single most important and valuable health advances in human history. I'm pretty strongly behind vaccines that have a solid safety record behind them and in which the trade-offs from getting the vaccine, because any health intervention carries risks, the tra- I, I literally know, I literally, I should say, knew a person, young, healthy, vibrant, beautiful woman who died of a flu vaccine. There have only been 900 or something like that of those people total ever. And I still know somebody that it happened to. Not to say that I'm saying flu vaccines are dangerous. I'm just saying that every health intervention carries risks. Of course, as Jordan Peterson probably would point out, not having health interventions carries risks as well. And that's what I'm talking about, this trade-off analysis. So if you want me to get the COVID vaccine, you have to figure out how to convince me that the trade-off for getting this vaccine under the conditions in which we are in is sufficient to take the risk against an unproven technology with no long-term safety record. So you you need a better argument than the one being made. And I haven't heard one yet. The arguments that I hear are things like, so we can get back to normal. That's not an argument. That's coercion. The premise of necessity of getting the vaccine to go back to normal isn't established. I live in Tennessee. I've been to Florida many times in the past 12 months. Both of these states are examples of places where something very close to normal has been being maintained long before there was a vaccine. It wasn't total normalcy, but there's been something very close to normal. And I'm just utterly not convinced that we have to have the vaccine to get back to normal. Maybe vulnerable populations, you know, elderly, overweight, uh, other comorbidities, for them, the trade-off analysis is different, and if we look at it from a perspective of public health, which is a strange term that I think about more and more now, that the public itself doesn't have health. But we talk about how how healthcare outcomes, you know, relate one person to another. the 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 net story might be that the vaccine is advantageous for people with with various. Uh, reasons to believe that they are extra vulnerable or significantly vulnerable to this virus. I'm not even going to quote statistics or anything like that, but the COVID virus is not severe enough for the majority of people who are in my demographic and younger and healthy and exercise regularly and get sufficient vitamin D, etc. to 
justified to me that we need to get vaccinated. So you need a good argument for why. And so we can get back to normal is not a good argument. It's coercion. It's actually coercive. It, we're going to mandate it so you can fly. That's somewhere between coercion and force. We're just going to mandate it outright. That would be force. At what? At the at the barrel end of a barrel of a gun? Probably not. Probably by completely excluding you from participation in society one way or another. This is why where uh, Joe Biden coming out and saying that the federal government doesn't plan to have you know COVID passports, vaccine passports uh, through it doesn't really mean anything. This is where what Ron DeSantis did in Florida is so much more significant because what Ron DeSantis did in Florida was he said that industries not only can there not only will there not be government issued COVID or, uh, vaccine passports, but that businesses in Florida cannot require a vaccine passport. So it's a very different thing. Joe Biden can have zero plans. The federal government can have zero plans to to create a COVID passport program. But if United, Delta, and American Airlines all three decide that they're going to have COVID passports or vaccine passports to fly. Everybody who wants to fly is going to have to get one. That's coercion. That's not an argument. You have not convinced me. Oh, you need this to fly. Bullshit. I've flown about a bajillion times since last summer. I don't actually need one. I've flown on absolutely packed airplanes where we have to wear our masks and you have to like, what do they say on the airplane that you can remove your mask to eat and drink, but you must replace it between bites and sips. You can't even just take your mask off and enjoy your drink for like 10 minutes and put it back on. No, you have to put it up and down between every sip. Like we're playing along with all this. I've flown a bunch of times. There have been no like ridiculous COVID outbreaks. As a matter of fact, if you look at the virus, I know I'm kind of rambling here, but if you look at the, there's, there's this thing I did take actually mathematical epidemiology or I, sorry, I took mathematical ecology in graduate school. And, um, there was a unit that we did a month or so long in mathematical epidemiology. And there's something within mathematical epidemiology known as Farr's Law. And Farr's Law describes how a pandemic is going to come out, how it's going to spread, what the curve looks like of how it's going to rage through a population. And whether you, you, you look at the graphs, you look at the graphs of where COVID broke out, where people had stricter lockdowns, or they had very little lockdowns, where they wore lots of masks, where they wore fewer masks based on mandates, et cetera, based on assessments of people's behavior. And you don't see any significant differences, really. What you see is FARS law. You see FARS law playing out every single time. FARS law playing out every single time. The only thing that you see is slight differences in how quickly things took off based on how early some of the policies were implemented, but the gross per capita numbers end up looking exactly the same, following virtually exactly the same curve virtually everywhere. Because the pandemic is bigger than <laughs> bigger than your stupid little intervention. It was never designed to deal with a respiratory virus that transfers or that, 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 that is transmitted by aerosols in the first place. So we have a very different thing though, when it's coercion and force, I would argue even force when you have Significant industries, or I should say industries with no options available. Like if all three major airline carriers do this, we're pretty much stuck. So you have an entire airline industry now that may decide that you have to be vaccinated in order to participate in some function that is typical to professional life for many people in this country or in the world today. And when you have that, you are now tipping not just into coercion, but into force. This is an, this, Say what you want about it. Think what you want about it. 
But the truth is that that's not an argument. You you have to get the COVID vaccine so you can fly is not an argument for why somebody should get the COVID vaccine because the underlying premise of necessity has not been established. You have to convince people if you want a principled reason, if you want to convince people rather than coerce people or force people to get the vaccine, you have to convince people that there is a need to take this vaccine. Okay. It's also a lie, by the way, this idea that we're, we can go back to normal once everybody gets a vaccine. That's actually a lie. It's a blatant lie. It's a shocking thing that people are accepting this lie because normal before normal, not even normal before normal has never included having to be vaccinated against a virus with this profile under conditions of coercion and force without making the argument using a novel vaccine technology that has no long-term safety profile or even actually approval, except under emergency powers. It's not even an approved vaccine. It's just being used under emergency powers. Or is it normal to say that, well, well, apparently we're going to have to get the vaccine boosted every six months because of either variants or because coronavirus antibodies don't stay stable in the body or whatever it is that we're dealing with. It was never normal to have to get injected for a virus, particularly a virus of this type, every six months that was never normal this isn't normal we're not going back to normal it's in the the whole project is in defiance of virtually everything we already know about epidemiology this is not going back to normal this is going into some stupid new normal where this is what happens and here's what happens you know i wrote this article about a year ago called your woke breaking point where what i argued is that people will engage how does a slippery slope fallacy work people will engage in rationalization post hoc rationalization this is one of the key insights that jonathan Haidt popularized in the world is that people will engage in post hoc rationalization they will make decisions and then they will rationalize those so that it looks like they made a good meaning both intelligent and virtuous decision, and they will convince themselves after the fact of that what they did made sense. So once you get the vaccine, you're going to now engage in a process of, conv- you've injected something into your body. You've injected a, a technology that's not even, I mean, there are risks around it, and people who are hesitant about this are very often aware of these risks. And they are concerned about them. So the rationalization process is going to be stronger for these people than people are just kind of la-di-da and going along with it. So you're going to rationalize, yeah, this was a good idea. Yeah, this was necessary. You're going to convince yourself that it was necessary for you to have done this because otherwise it doesn't necessarily make sense. And then what you become is somebody who's going to be more open to, well, I already got one vaccine. I might as well get the booster. Oh, well, they're going to need another booster. I might as well get that too. Oh, I'm going to as well get this one too. I might as well get this one. Too. Well, uh, you know, I don't really care if they're going to tie it, tie, you know, being able to fly. It's just being able to fly. It's not, I don't really care if they're going to tie your freedom to be able to fly to having a vaccine because I have the vaccine and I went through it and everybody else can go through it. This is the kind of rationalization process that takes you off of the principle We're no longer talking about an argument about trade-offs. We're talking about creating a culture of conformity through coercion by getting people to rationalize their decision, which didn't necessarily make sense, to resolve their cognitive dissonance about what they did, and to become apologists and advocates for something that still isn't making the argument. I got the vaccine, so you should too, isn't an argument. I got the vaccine and nothing bad happened to me, isn't an argument. You need to make an argument that fits within the trade-offs. And that's going to actually, for me, what it's going to take is time. I want to see some medium-term safety profile. 
I want to see the the culture of coercion going around or going down before we're getting into this. And I don't want to hear bullshit arguments like this is how we get back to normal. I've been looking around all over the place. I go, people are acting very normally. I went out last night and it's, it was kind of funny because my wife has barely gone out and she and I went out and she's like, whoa, downtown is like totally back. Like COVID doesn't exist in Tennessee anymore. And I'm like, I know I've been trying to tell you it's everywhere I go, except for places like California. We're now in this position where it's like back to normal is already normal and it didn't require the vaccine. And then with people having the vaccine who want it, that confidence goes up. Okay. So for me, the principal argument against the vaccine is very simple. If you want me to take it, you have to engage in a proper trade-off analysis argument, and you're going to have to make the argument for the vaccine. The problem that you have to get over is that the virus itself is not severe enough for it to carry very much weight. You talk about my responsibility not to spread the virus, but if the vaccine is do, does what it's supposed to do, why does that matter? Why do I need the vaccine to protect somebody else who is protected by having got the vaccine if they wanted it? If the vaccine works the way that it's supposed to, or does the vaccine not work? Well, that's not helping your argument. Or if the vaccine only works partially and still carries a severe risk, that that's still not really helping your argument. Oh, I'm going to have to get injected with something twice, you know, and maybe in patterns of two or maybe just one. I don't know how the boosters are going to work. Probably just one every so many months because the vaccine doesn't but then I still have to act as though I'm under a pandemic and I have to be careful and blah, blah, blah. We're not really going back to normal because the vaccine isn't really wholly effective. None of this makes sense. You're not making the argument very well. So you're going to have to make the argument to me that this vaccine, that the trade-offs around taking this vaccine are to my advantage. That's independent. Like, obviously it's a decision for me and my healthcare providers to decide whether or not my risk for say autoimmune disorders or any of the the side effects of the vaccine uh, that have been coming up at, relatively high rates, but not terribly, you know, they're not like, oh my God rates, but they're concerning rates and they're being downplayed. That's another aspect of this. Um, it's up to me and my healthcare provider if it's right for me, but it's that, that, that goes for every individual and it should be the individuals and their healthcare providers decision without coercion, without force. It's not United airlines job. It's not Delta airlines job. It's not Shea stadiums job. It's not the major league baseball job. It's not Disney's job. It's not even the Democrats job to decide whether or not, or the federal government at all to decide whether or not I need to have this vaccine. I need the argument made that the law, that the, that the, that the, that the virus is dangerous enough to justify whatever the real risk is to me to get that vaccine. And the problem is we don't know how dangerous the vaccine is yet. We don't actually know. We have some guesses. We have some projections. There are reasons to believe it may be safe. We have no medium term. We have no long term safety profiles. We have absolutely no idea what's going to happen. For example, I read an article not that long ago. It's concerning. I read an article not that long ago saying that there would be a third wave of COVID. I guess that's what wave it's going to be on coming probably this fall and that there would be massive sickness and death primarily among the vaccinated. And I'm like, okay, what in the heck is this? So you're, th these are the kinds of things you're going to have to account. This wasn't some conspiracy theory article. This was, this was one of these things. It's like, are they telling us? This is one of those, like, I don't remember if it's CNN or what, but it's one of these things where it's like, are they telling us that they're, <laughs> are they preparing us, preparing the ground for what they know they've done? Like, what is this?
Um, you know, it was a mainstream corporate press outlet. And it's like, what, what is this? So you have to make that argument that COVID, that my risk of getting COVID and possibly, but less of spreading COVID, because it doesn't make sense. If everybody can get the the vaccine that wants it, my capacity to spread COVID shouldn't be terribly significant to those people who are vaccinated. I understand the idea, by the way, that there are people who cannot be vaccinated. In fact, perhaps I am one. And so the herd immunity argument, I understand, like I get protected by everybody else getting vaccinated. So if I'm particularly vulnerable, but, or, and that I can't get the vaccine, somebody, everybody else being vaccinated lowers the chance that I'll get this life. I understand this argument. I understand how this works. I've made this argument on behalf of other vaccines in the past. Um, and I understand that it makes sense. Again, this is a trade-off argument for me. You have to convince me that my risk of getting COVID or becoming a vector of COVID is high enough and significant enough of a risk to justify my getting injected with something that's safety record is not yet known under weird conditions. So now I want to turn to the weird conditions part of this because this is where, I mean, my principled argument has been made. The principled argument is very simple. You have to convince me to get the vaccine on its merits rather than through coercion or force by doing a proper trade-off analysis that indicates that to my satisfaction as an individual in collaboration with my healthcare providers who have raised their concerns, but maybe yours have fewer concerns, maybe uh, for you, maybe they have more concerns for you. It's an individual process and it should be an individual thing. And therefore your freedom and ability to participate in the activities of day-to-day life shouldn't be tied to it. Thanks to the decision-making processes of corporations or political leaders who do not have, they, they haven't, they're not in the relationship with you and your doctor. It's not their business. So let's say that the, if you want to make that argument, you have to convince me that the virus is bad enough to justify the risk. And you've got an uphill battle. Not just because the virus is not particularly frightening to me at this point, not just because the evidence that I have gathered with my own eyes and the things that I have read that are quite understandable about the virus, the very comprehensible things indicate to me that there's no need for this vaccine. Like the vaccine itself is not even needed in any significant way, except perhaps in particularly vulnerable populations. You've got to be able to convince me from your position now of whatever trust that I have left in you that I should get this. That's my principled argument. And here's your problem. You have no trust. You have none of my trust left. My trust in public health authorities, if that's even a public health authority, that's a, that's really kind of a Orwellian office. Um, that's a, that's a scary thing, has been completely destroyed. I have no trust left. Zero trust. I literally mean zero. I have zero trust left in any of these major institutional entities telling me that I have to get the vaccine for my own and the greater good. And the reason I have no trust is, let's just look back at the last year. So let's talk first about why the vaccine is not even necessary. Well, for the majority of people, I'm not talking about statistics because I don't have them in front of me. I don't want to get them wrong. For the majority of people who don't have, you know, I'm in my 40s, young, early 40s. I'm in kind of in shape. I'm trying to be in shape um, and getting in better shape again. I used to be quite athletic. Um, I eat well. I take care of myself. I take adequate vitamin D. I actually get adequate vitamin D in the sun 
uh, whenever I get the chance as well. Um, I have a number of different things that I do to try to, you know, make sure that my viral loads, if I am infected with anything, are, are you know, manageable. I feel like I have a pretty robust immune system. I actually feel like I had a very severe coronavirus. In fact, I don't feel like I know I had a very severe coronavirus in the spring of 2019, which I presume is not COVID-19, but I coughed vigorously for weeks. I coughed up blood. I had weird fevers. I had weird fatigue. I did not lose my sense of taste and smell, but I've already survived a apparently severe coronavirus that I got in China, um, in Beijing. And I don't know if I have cross-reactive antibodies. I don't know if they've expired. I don't know. I do know that I had a severe coronavirus. And so, you know, I look at this and I think probably going to come through this okay if I get the virus. But that said, not only is that not a, like, this is not a part of the conversation from the people who want everybody to get the vaccine. And normally that would be fine. They're advocating for their position except that they're suppressing the idea that things like, you know, adequate zinc and vitamin D and exercise and health and youth are, are sufficiently protective to where I don't have to particularly worry about the, the virus. They've also much more concerningly suppressed the idea that there are what they might call ambulatory treatments or that there are treatments for this virus, which are known uh, I don't know a great deal of them. I've watched a handful of people get relatively severe cases of COVID and go on what they said does not work, hydroxychloroquine, and then watched them almost immediately watch their symptoms, like within hours, vanish. You know, and I mean, watch by either phone call or Zoom or whatever, you know, video call. I've watched people go from very sick to very not, I mean, they didn't sound great, didn't feel great, but they went from like very sick to you know, moderately bad cold in a matter of hours on a treatment that they've vigorously suppressed. Then there's the the issue. And I think that even saying these words on a podcast, like gets you in trouble. Then there's the issue of ivermectin. I'm not saying that ivermectin works, but I saw the testimony to the Senate that later got suppressed where a doctor speaks up and says, not only is it extremely effective at treatment for people who end up with COVID, it's extremely prophylactic to, you know, people who are in vulnerable positions. These are cheap drugs with long-term safety profiles, et cetera. So I'm not saying that I know that these drugs, hydroxychloroquine and uh, ivermectin as two that have gained a lot of, you know, alternative press are effective treatments for COVID-19. I don't actually know that for sure, but that's kind of a problem because the reason I don't know it is because there's been a relentless propaganda campaign against them. There's not been an honest inquiry into them. There's been the opposite of an honest inquiry into them from day one to the point where they're literally taking testimony that was given to the United States Senate by a medical professional on the issue and taking it down to where that's not easily available anymore. None of this strikes confidence in me and the people who are trying to tell me that the vaccine is the one and only way have honesty behind their argument. So if you're going to convince me, remember my principal argument is you have to make the argument for me to get this vaccine. You're operating from a deficit of trust just because of that. This is without talking about how badly you overhyped. I get it at the beginning. You overhyped the models. You want to do, you know, better to take a doomsday scenario than 
you know, overreact a little bit and then back off from that. But we didn't back off from that. And then, of course, there's the big one, right? There's the big one. You talk about the suppression of alternative treatments. You talk about this, you know, the downplaying of the evidence. You talk about, for example, the PCR test stuff that's all about how that's not really appropriate for figuring out how many people had COVID. You know, this is, this is these are these are very significant things. The PCR test. I'm not a huge expert in how the PCR test works. I read up on it. I got the basic idea. I understand that, you know, it's a concentrate. It concentrates the, the material present in each cycle that you run, run through. And that from what I've read after 28 cycles, it starts getting to be where your false positive rate goes up too high. It becomes too sensitive. And they were running off in 35 to 42, which is too many. So their false positive rate might be very high. I know that there were incentive structures for hospitals who were getting paid for treating COVID patients. So it was in their best interest to identify COVID as being, you know, implicated in the people. So I don't actually know. Maybe it was all, maybe it was 80%, maybe it's hundred percent. Maybe the death rate and the case rate are exactly correct. Maybe there were only, maybe they're 10 or 20% overreported. Maybe they're 90% overreported though. I don't know. Uh, this isn't helping because again, what it's telling me, and I'm not trying to make an argument about what the numbers actually are. I'm not trying to downplay what seems to have occurred. I'm not even trying to downplay or discredit the official word. What I'm saying is that the circumstances around which that official word have been produced do not put honesty on the front foot and therefore they do not engender trust. So if you're going to make the argument for me to take a vaccine, you're operating from now we've got two layers of massive deficit in trust. Now there's the people who want us to go back to normal <laughs> by getting the vaccine, which I already said is a lie, which is another deficit of trust point. And this, this group of people have a tremendous legitimacy crisis looming over them of their own making. Our schools of public health, you know, we could talk about these for, for hours with the various like shady things going on. There have been excellent exposés about how they have ties, for example, to the CCP. That's concerning. For example, there's even an article in the Harvard Crimson. You can read it yourself. It's called The Other Chan. It came out last fall talking about how the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, which, by the way, got baited into um, supporting 2 plus 2 equals 5, <laughs> Literally, they published a tweet about it, and then they went on to publish an article about it uh, saying that 2 plus 2 can equal 5. They did this in the middle of a pandemic where there are widespread fears that, that, that the public health officials are overcounting the cases and deaths and saying that 2 plus 2 can equal 5. This is really an amazing thing. But this article exposes, and it was, it's been exposed in other places before as well because I knew about it before the article even came out, in the Harvard Crimson itself, the student newspaper, came out exposing that the T.H. Chan School of Public Health was created by a man named Ronnie Chan with direct ties to the CCP through one of the largest or maybe the single largest financial gift ever given to the university. We've seen exposés that the you know London College or whatever it is that did all of the stuff there had direct ties to the CCP as well. So there's, there's again, we're talking a major deficit of trust. We're seeing more and more stuff coming out along those lines about the deficit of trust, about China's involvement with what's going on on this particular thing, on this particular virus. But then we have these schools of public health. And I don't even have to talk about that. These leaders of public health, they're coming out giving us contradictory information. That's not that great. Wear a mask. Don't wear a mask. Wear two masks. Wear three masks. Don't wear a mask. You know, whatever. It's all over the place. Texas is going to be a disaster. Texas wasn't a disaster. Florida is a, is a, is a, is going to be a catastrophe. It's like, 
number 40 in, in badness. Then on the other hand, you know, we have to lock down Michigan. We have to lock down New York. We have to lock down New Jersey. We have to lock down California. We have to be locked down in severe lockdowns, tight lockdowns. And those states are doing kind of the worst. Then you have people like Cuomo covering up all the people he killed by his terrible policy. So he could, you know, own Trump or whatever he was trying to do. I'm not going to speculate as to his motives. I have speculations, but we're going to keep them quiet for the moment. Um, in fact, I was red-pilled on the friggin' lockdowns. I was all in on the lockdowns. I've owned this a few times. I was red-pilled on the lockdowns by collecting the data that they were given, the data that were coming out myself. I picked four states that were doing, when they first started to open up last summer, you know, partial opening up, dropping the lockdowns, keeping the masks, et cetera, and some other policies. I picked four states that were staying strictly locked down, and I picked four states that were staying, that were, that were opening up. I was utterly convinced that I picked this, you know, rather sensitive statistic. I could talk about what the statistic is. What I did was I said, assuming that, sorry, it's a dorky thing. Assuming that the growth rate of a viral agent is going to be exponential in the population, which is a basic epidemiological assumption, given the numbers, what exponential growth rate would get us from today to tomorrow? And that was the statistic that I, I tracked. I calculated the statistic every day for the entire United States population, given the numbers that they were giving in eight different states, four that were locked down, four that were not. In the process of tracking this, what I saw was that the expected massive outbreaks that everybody was predicting in states like Florida and Georgia, et cetera, and Texas were not occurring. They didn't happen. Whereas the expected, you know, benefit of the continued and often draconian lockdowns in states like California, uh, were ha the, the, the numbers were actually going up in those places faster than they were in places that were opening up. And so I was like, wait a minute, something's wrong. I followed the data. And then when I tried to tell people I followed the data, I got told I was going to kill grandma and all kinds of hyperbolic things. And I thought, well, something's very wrong here. Deficit of trust, very deep. Um, very, deficit of trust, very, very deep. But then this was all in May. <laughs> this was in going into June. St. Floyd had not died yet when we were doing following the data and getting a little bit red-pilled on what's going on with a narrative around the... In fact, I didn't even think there was a narrative. I thought, oh, well, lockdowns have been... They were a good idea because we didn't know. Maybe it's really bad. The models were scary. Lockdowns are really bad. Or, sorry, the, the virus might be really bad. Let's lock down. Let's try to prevent... Oh, wait, it's not working. So now, of course, the sensible thing in the light of the data would be, to, okay, we're going to stop this. And it didn't stop. And then St. Floyd died. St. George Floyd, patron saint of fentanyl, died in Minneapolis under the knee of the police officer Derek Chauvin, and we all know what happened next. The cultural revolution that I had been predicting for the United States broke out in earnest. The anti-racist cultural revolution began, and immediately I was shocked to see where literally days before Right-wing protesters protesting the lockdowns, who turned out to have been following the data and making principled arguments toward the Constitution and liberty, whatever the data might indicate, being round, resoundingly condemned for their irresponsibility and their behavior, St. Floyd dies, and instantaneously, racial justice is a big enough issue where it doesn't matter. We can have parades or... or protests. We can have massive protests. We can have massive gatherings. We can have massive activity. We can have riots, outright riots. And we'll have those defended. We'll make sure that the 
the person who went on to become the vice president of the United States is going to contribute, you know, encourage people to contribute to their bail funds. And these need to happen for racial justice. And racial justice is the real pandemic. And I'm, of course, paying attention to critical race theory, and I know what's going on with critical race theory. I'm one of the few voices at the time speaking up clearly about critical race theory, and I'm like, holy shit. That's what's guiding our schools of public health. And I watched one after another after another of these major epidemiologists of these major schools of public health and our politicians and our major um, institutions, all, including the CDC, all bending to this racism, the systemic racism pandemic is worse pandemic than the actual pandemic that's so bad that other people can't protest legally for their own freedom. And I was like, this is not correct. This is, you know, I'd read my Herbert Marcuse. This is repressive tolerance. This is a completely biased and bogus thing. Talk about losing faith in these institutions of public health. Like their politics are way out in front of what they're doing. And their politics are politics that I'm very familiar with the origins of and don't trust at all. And these are the people telling me that I have to get a vaccine for a virus that I'm not afraid of. And don't see what, I mean, convince me I should be afraid of it. Turns out your propaganda campaign, your psyops or whatever it was about it worked for a while. And then the data broke that and it didn't work anymore. So you aren't going to be able to scare me into it. You're actually going to have to convince me that the virus is scary enough. And you are operating from such a place of hypocrisy and bogus claims and lack of trust that I honestly don't know how you're going to do it now. The CDC is going to come out and convince me how they're going to, they need two years to earn my trust back at, the, at a minimum, two years of perfectly squeaky clean behavior with no politics ahead of, of, of professionalism and no politics ahead of medicine, no politics ahead of their mission. They need two years before at, at, at a minimum. I don't even know. I'm saying two years just off the top of my head. I have no idea how long it's going to be before the CDC can earn my trust back. The Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, the John Hopkins School of Public Health, the major epidemiologists that went all over Twitter with their little blue checks, they're never getting it back. Never. Never. You don't like it? You shouldn't have done what you did. You have completely cratered my trust in your institution. And it was, don't blame me for it. It was on you. You decided that politics are central to epidemiology. Politics are central to public health. You said this. They said this over and over and over again, and they, they, they didn't just say it. They acted consistently with it. And these are the people who want me to get the vaccine. These people who were like, oh yeah, well, we have an experimental vaccine. And, uh, because there's a racial disparity for reasons that are obviously just systemic racism, because obviously because critical race theory, and you don't have to do another ounce of, of analysis are disproportionately affecting black and Brown revealed the cracks. Racism is a pandemic, blah, blah, blah. We heard all that deaths of black and brown people. We heard that over and over and over again. So we're going to have this experimental vaccine and for, for health equity, we're going to make them get it first. Like, so you come out with this idiotic argument and then they're like, it's white supremacy. That's convincing black and brown people not to trust getting the vaccine. And so now they're having to dump billion, like where we are, we're so low in the trust now that they're having to pay people or give them free baseball tickets, literally pay people though, in some cities, 50 or a hundred dollars to get vaccinated because people don't want to get the vaccine because they're not having the argument made for them. Again, by the way, buying that, that's bribery, that's coercion. You're not making the argument. We're going to pay you, what is it that they just came out with? $3 billion the federal government said they're going to dedicate. We got AOC going around on like a vaccine bus or something like that. Like this is horrific. 
This is absolutely horrific. There's no public trust in this. This is, this is a catastrophe. If the virus could sell itself on being dangerous, you wouldn't have to give people 50 bucks or 100 bucks or a baseball ticket or have a party bus or something stupid like this going around with, you know, Alexandria Ocasio 1619 Cortez riding around on the bus. You wouldn't have to do this if the virus could sell the vaccine. Smallpox would sell the vaccine. Polio would sell the vaccine. Measles would probably sell the vaccine, and especially because you could come out and say, oh yeah, we've been using this vaccine for like 30 years. It works. It's relatively safe. There are some trade-offs. You could make the argument, but you can't make the argument here. And coercion is not going to be acceptable. And the more, this is a further problem that, that these authorities face, is the more they try to coerce, the more they try to push this top down, especially if it transitions to force, the less convinced, they can't figure this out, the, the less convincing their argument is they're undermining their own ability to make the argument, but we live in a free society still to this up to now, relatively free. And therefore it is their obligation to make that argument and they're not making it. So this is my principled argument against getting the COVID-19 vaccine. Number one, they have the, the, the simple argument itself is you have to make the argument on its own without coercion or force. You have to be able to compare in a trade-off analysis that it is worth each individual in, in collaboration with their own healthcare providers making the decision based on their own actual realities of their health. You have to be able to convince them without coercion or force, without mandating or tying to their ability to participate in the activities of daily life, without having to buy them off. <laughs> you have to be able to convince them that that's in their best interest by making that trade-off analysis argument and you're not doing it. And then... More than that, the people who are trying to do it are coming from such a place of diminished public trust that it's unbelievable. To summarize, there are treatments for this virus. There are prophylactics for this virus, and it's all been downplayed. It's all been denied. It's all been hidden. It's all been shuttled, shoved away. Why? They all necessitate, or they all undermine the necessity, I should say, of the argument that we need the vaccine at all, or especially to quote-unquote get back to normal, Right? They undermine that, and so this is this all looks very shady. You're, this, so you don't have the trust even to to make the argument for that reason. Of course, Pfizer coming out and saying that they have their world biggest profit quarter ever, or whatever it was, you know, four point seven billion dollars in revenue or something. Most of which because the vaccine is free for most people, which means our taxpayers paid for this. We're paying for this, or they just printed money and made everything like food more expensive. Uh, and inflation's coming uh, so that they can pay Pfizer so Pfizer can get rich. Like none of this is helping your argument, guys. Um, then secondly, the people pushing the argument are coming from a position of complete, absolutely bogus nonsense policies that put not just politics, but idiotic left-wing politics rooted in critical theory that don't even make sense that I've spent literally the last two or three years resoundingly criticizing and diving deeper into and finding out the deeper I dive, the more need for criticism that there is. No trust. So you have no trust from which to make this argument. And then, of course, you're also applying pressure. You're also applying force, coercion, bribery, etc., as means to try to get people to get it and undermining your trust further. You're creating a deeper and deeper and deeper legitimation crisis or legitimacy crisis in the attempt to try to get people to do something. And so you're not going to make the argument that way. And so again, how could I be? So just to close again, my argument is if you want me to get the vaccine, you have to convince me to get the vaccine. 
You have to make the argument. That's it. And here are the problems that you face in doing so from my perspective right now. Without even having to talk about my own health circumstances between my healthcare provider and I. You don't have well, the, the, you have to make the argument. But what would convince me? What would convince me? I should, it, to, to, it's fair to say that I should, like, if I can't, this is a point we raise in How to Have Impossible Conversations. Peter Bogosian and I talk about that if somebody has an indefeasible position, in other words, there's absolutely nothing that could change their mind, then they're not holding their belief on the basis of reason or evidence. They're holding their, base on the, uh, their belief on the basis of something that works kind of like faith. And I'm not talking necessarily about religious faith, but I'm talking about the idea that they're holding it for non-rational reasons or whatever, um, and that they've adhered to it probably for reasons like morals or out of fear or for a sense of control or to fit in with a community or something like this. So what would convince me? I should be able to articulate what would change my mind. Well, I've already said, actually, it's very simple. I need to be convinced that the circumstances surrounding the possibility my risk of contracting and or spreading the virus outweigh the risks associated with taking the vaccine. That's going to require at least a medium term safety profile. Like, I don't even think that there's any reason that I should even consider this thing until we've reached a point where uh, it's not being applied under emergency authorization. Like, why can't it just get regular approval, even if it's accelerated approval or something like this first? Um, so you have a trade-off analysis to make, and if you can convince me that my risk, either as a potential, uh, person who, who gets the disease or as an infectious, potentially infectious agent to other people, my risk, cause I'm open to that argument. I've already said, I understand the idea that there are people who cannot get the vaccine, who are also in vulnerable populations who depend on other people being vaccinated in general. I'm not necessarily speaking specifically about this vaccine, which apparently doesn't necessarily, it works partially, but not wholly. But if you talk about something like measles, I understand there are people who cannot get the measles vaccine who are at risk of measles doing tremendous possible damage to their lives, to their, to their health. And they depend on the fact that other people are immune so that the virus doesn't spread very in an uncontrolled fashion, the herd immunity argument to protect those who are not vaccine eligible. I get that. And I'm happy to participate in that. That is a point at which you could convince me, but you have to convince me that this virus is severe enough either to my own health. So I'm not acting just selfishly or as an actual infectious agent, by saying I'm going to kill grandma, that's not going to cut it. It's not good enough. Grandma can get the vaccine. You're going to have to make the argument. You're not making it. So convince me that and that the, that my risk there in one of those two domains is serious enough to outweigh the risk of take risks associated as assessed by myself and my healthcare provider of taking this vaccine under the conditions that we have, which are seriously sketchy. They're utterly sus. These conditions are completely sus. Like what in the world? Um, so if you want to convince me, what I would tell you is you can absolutely change my mind. You've got some, you've got a ways to go about making a cogent argument about the risks associated with the virus. You're going to have to explain to me in clear terms that don't try to suppress anything, why treatments for the virus aren't actually treatments for the virus where you've got the uphill battle of me having actually seen them treat somebody like literally seen them treat people and they worked. 
Um, granted, that that's not data, that's anecdote. I get it, but you you got an uphill battle here. And then you've actually what, what you're you're actually going to have to have some some longer term safety profiles so that I can make a more informed decision with my healthcare professional. And so if you want to do that, by the way, all these things you've done to completely burn my trust in you and your institutions. You're going to have to start fixing that. I can tell you right now that that for me, if first step to that, an absolute first step, an unequivocal, non-negotiable first step, is you're going to have to get the critical race theory right the heck out of your analysis of any. If you're still saying racism is a public health menace or a pandemic, just shut up. You're not. You have zero percent chance almost of like. You could say that and get me to get a smallpox or polio vaccine. You probably could get me on measles. But you're not going to get me on COVID with if you're still saying that. Like you're so full of it that you're just not going to get me. So you guys have got your house to clean up. And who are you guys? Public health officials, politicians, media people that keep pushing this stuff. Clean up your own house. The whole so-called branch Covidian <laughs> crew, as it's mockingly called, the the cult around COVID. You've got your house to clean up before you're going to be able to convince me. I'm not saying you won't be able to force me into this vaccine or coerce me into this vaccine because you probably will, at which point I'm going to hate you forever, literally hate you forever on principle, just on principle. And if something bad happens as a result of this, or even something I think might be because of this, that's bad, that's going to just, it's going to go from hating you to hating you with great hate forever. You think I'll ever vote for a Democrat again if that happens? Are you out of your mind? Ever? You think I'll ever tell anybody anything other than to never vote for a Democrat again after this past 12 months or whatever? If that happens, you're out of your mind. Out of your mind. Absolutely out of your mind. So you've got to clean up your house. Then you've got to make the argument. And your argument needs to be a tight trade-off based argument that doesn't attempt to hide anything anymore. Under those conditions my mind can be changed. You can convince me that it is in my own health best interest to take this vaccine. It is possible. It's not going to be easy given the circumstances. Your virus isn't bad enough. You can convince me though, maybe more easily, that I become a risk factor to people who, for whatever reason, are vulnerable yet cannot be vaccinated, supposing that an argument for the vaccine can be made for its efficacy. So there are at least two pathways which can be combined to convincing me. But right now, I'm just going to tell you, the people trying are in no position to do it. And until they get their stuff together, until they really work on it, they're not getting anywhere near it. And so maybe I'll get forced into this vaccine, but I'm not taking it willingly until all of that changes.